Hey there, welcome to this video recording, very special occasion. I am here with a legend whose name is Freeman. And this is the first of a video interview that he's done in a long time and perhaps the first of this kind of interview. Welcome Freeman, thank you so much for joining me. It's, uh, it's really amazing to have you here. Thank you Beth, uh, I look forward to it. Yeah, it will be an interesting, uh, different scenario for me, not covering, uh, you know, diabolical schemes. Well, we can get into that too. First, what I'd love to do is just say a little bit about how you and I connected in the first place, and that'll give some context to those people that have been following me, and maybe you've already seen the interview you did with me. Um, so, you know, it might sound a little dramatic, but Freeman, I feel like you were really there for me in a, a very down time after my mom had passed away. And at the same time, when the veil got kind of ripped out from my, before my eyes, and I saw a lot more of the world than I ever expected to, or certainly wanted to. And it was a kind of devastating thing for me because I had been running with my blinders on. And your work as a podcaster, as a filmmaker, putting content out for the last 15 years gave me somewhere to land. Uh, a touchstone because there's a lot of I'll say you guys out there that are that are talking truth but you deliver it in a way that always left me feeling hopeful about the world and having more energy than when I started out so thank you so much for that and uh, it's just again an honor to have you here how much you've helped me in the past I, I appeared on on your program the Freeman show maybe three months ago three four months ago something around that and uh, it's been super fun to meet your audience. You're surrounded by amazing people. Do you want to just take a minute to say more accurately about yourself, what you do, what you've created, and then I'll start asking you some questions. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was all a miraculous event. None of it was planned. Nothing was uh, thought out or I never thought, you know, this is what I'm going to do with my life. It was never that. Um, it's a long road story that we'll get to uh, where I lived in a van for a decade. I was a nomad, a home free person. Uh, have a, just a healthy disrespect for authority. And so I, I found myself not being able to function in the, in the normal world. So I found my own way. I didn't know words or things to, to explain how I was doing what I was doing, but uh, I don't know. Do you want the story? Yeah, uh, go for it. I'm all about the story. Absolutely. All right. All right. Uh, so uh, I lived, I lived off the grid, if you will. I was a beat bum for a while and um, I got really tired and bored of all of that, uh, getting in trouble and being chased by authorities and being mugged and you know if it's bad it's happened to me oh. um and but it was good you know it was like this life of adventure i've always had that within me i even as a small boy i just packed a bag lunch and started walking i wasn't running away i was just on an adventure uh, and that that stuck with me. I meant to grab the little picture of myself at 10 years old, sitting behind the wheel, ready to go, because that's who I was. Wow. And so, you know, my dad took us around the country a few times uh, doing whatever it is, you know, mysterious past through dad. We can get that too. 
But so eventually I made my way to community college. I, I was bored of being a beach bum, I had nothing to do. And I went to community college and said, hey, I wanna sign up. And they said, oh, you're broke. You can come and do it all for free. I said, awesome. Nice. <laughs> they nice. paid for my apartment, they paid for my books, uh, they paid for my classes, you know, it was all a Pell Grant. I was an honor student. So uh, I was placed in there. I, I, you know, I top scored and they brought me in and I was put into this thing called interdisciplinary studies. And that is quite a mouthful of its own, but it was a two and a half year course in community college that was, uh, I guess the club of Rome really established this and uh, it took care of all your required. So once you finished IDS, then you no longer had to take any required when you went to a regular university or college. And uh, so I did that and I, I graduated with honors. And during this time, I met some very interesting characters. <laughs> you know, I always say, if you're looking for the smartest people, go to detention. Okay. <laughs> but I spent my entire high school career in detention. I was an honor student, but I didn't care, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I would fail or I'd, I'd ace it, you know, depending on whether I liked it or not. And I didn't care. None of that mattered to me. I, you know, the first thing I did with my degree when I got my AA with honors uh, was lose it. <laughs> I've never seen the thing. I don't even remember it. <laughs> but in this class, I met this crazy genius who I call Alistair Morrison because he's kind of a cross between Alistair Crowley and Jim Morrison. And... Um, we started playing music together and, and hanging out and stuff. And he one day brought up the, the topic of the esoteric. And we all said, what's an esoteric? And he said, well, it means you don't know what it means. And we all laughed like, oh, God, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. and, uh, but this guy was super genius, right? Uh, long, crazy hair, wild man, long hair, nails, punk rocker, just crazy, but genius. And he opened up the, the puzzle to me. He showed me all Crowley, the OTO, Black Magic, and then he showed me Freemasonry. And when I saw the signs and symbols of Freemasonry, I immediately recognized them and said, my dad's got all that stuff in his top drawer. And he says, well, then your dad's a Freemason. And I'm like, oh, wait, you know what you're talking about here, this crazy magic and all of this ritual, and, you know, oh, no. Nah. So that was my introduction to it. And suddenly I found out my whole family or my, my mom and dad are deeply involved in, in mysterious orders that I had wow. no idea about. And so I've always said that this is kind of a genetic, genetic memory thing because as I traveled, I talked to people and that was kind of my gig. I just started wandering around the earth. I, I started making juggling sticks and I realized I could sell these juggling sticks anywhere I wanted. And so I got in my van and I left. <laughs> I had no idea where I was going. And right at that moment, a little black and white spotted dog befriended me and followed me for the next five years across the country. Never mm -hmm. leashed that dog. I didn't even name him. Uh, I mean, he had a name, but I didn't give it to him. He's called Yin Yang. And me and Yin Yang, we traversed this nation, you know, four times a summer, back and forth, back and forth never knowing where we were going, how we were gonna get there, or what we were gonna do when we got there. And I talked and I spread the message. There was no World Wide Web, you know? There wasn't any, it didn't exist, you know? There was no Yelps 
there was no Google Maps. Right. Uh, but, you know, I would usually have somebody in the band with me that I would just, you know, uh, I, I would love to bring people that had never seen a mountain or you know, just stick them in my van. And I would just yank that carpet out right from underneath them and say, here we go. And I could drive a hundred miles and the person next to me is like, where are we going? And I'd go, oh, well, I don't know, quick spots, you know? <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. I'll just jump in quickly here sure. to let, let you finish. But uh, we were in Minneapolis recently and got lost on the freeways for two hours in a row on the first night that we got there because my Canadian phone wouldn't connect with uh, a roaming package. And uh, it was like with two kids in the back, back seat and it was like, how in heck's name could people really function without this tool? Like we're so dependent on it now, it's ridiculous. So anyway, yeah. carry on, you must have, uh, but it, that helps if you don't know, if, you don't, if you're not attached to where you're going. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Do yeah. You yeah. I would tend to pick college towns to go to, to head towards, and then allow whatever to happen, happen. Mm -hmm. And I would return back home, and or whatever I would call home at that moment. Uh, you know, usually I'd find a place to stay for winter. Often it was Lawrence, Kansas. And I would tell my friends all the tales of everything that I had done. I'd done mountaintops to valley lows and done everything in between, you know, living the life of a millionaire. And, uh, you know, never having a dime to my name. And they would be like, well, how did you sleep? Where did you sleep? How did you eat? Where'd you go? What'd you do? How'd you do any of this? And I didn't have any answers. I was like, I don't know. Everything just kept going. As long as I was myself, as long as I uh, was friendly. And, uh, you know, honestly, it required a lot of subservience. And I think this is where most people lose this trail because I'd bring people with me and I'd see the difference in how some people would get reacted to and then how I was always welcome back no matter where I went. And if you had any sort of chip on your shoulder or anything that thought your ego was bigger or better than anyone else's, this didn't work. Mm. So Beautiful. it was true. I had to be subservient to anyone and everyone that I would find. And, you know, I called it friendship was my currency. And mm. I think that's one of the key ingredients to all of this, because most people want to engineer their lives and, and be in charge and feel in control. And I didn't mind being out of control. I didn't mind being, you know, under somebody else's home and thoughts or whatever. But in order to do this, you have to keep moving. You can't sit still. You have to keep traveling because if you try to stay in one place, then you're a burden. But if you're passing through, you're an adventure. And mm. people want to join in that adventure. They want mm. to share their lives. They learn things about their hometown they never saw before. And they get to share their lives with somebody, which you know, there's a lot of lonely people that want nothing more. So that's how it really began was me wandering this earth uh, with my little dog and whoever I could grab and throw in the van with me because I hated traveling alone. And the other thing was I couldn't tend to perform my own feats of miracles for myself. Mm. Uh, I, only if I was trying to feed another, if I was trying to comfort another, like whoever mm. I stuck in my van with me, <laughs> uh, could the magic really unfold. You know, it was it was more of a giving than a receiving. And I, I often said that I give the gift of receiving. Because a lot of people want to give, 
but receiving is very difficult for you. Mm. And so that's that's what it really was, is giving the gift of receiving. And so, yeah. Um, well, that's beautiful. That's I'll, beautiful. I'll throw anything in you want, and I can carry on. Yeah, just just to highlight those very beautiful points about subservience. That's that's the problem often walking in the world and feeling like life owes you something. And especially when you've got it really good, like God bless my son, but he's got it good. And it, he can easily get into that place of, um, you know, just entitlement and not appreciating what he has. And when you're open and vulnerable like that, where you just kind of put yourself out into the world, then you have to be kind to everybody because you don't know how that relationship is going to benefit you or that they're not benefits and, and you're not doing it just for that, but it's it just the whole thing keeps you humble. Yeah. Definitely. So that that's a very, very beautiful thing. And it won't work otherwise. Exactly. Exactly. And uh and then also just the what you're talking about is is allowing energy to move because if anything becomes stagnant then that's you know that's the whole definition to me of stuckness at any any level you know whether it's our life our feelings our thoughts our ability to create it's just really about movement and and then that that cliche that it's about the journey and yeah. how every moment of the journey goes and it's so it's so tempting to think of the, and worry about and obsess about a destination that's not really there anyway. So it's very beautiful what you demonstrated through that. And, and then to finally, I don't want to let this point go, how it, the magic works so much better when you, had, you were actually serving somebody else, yeah. not, just, not just trying to survive yourself. Yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> it just didn't work. Uh, I don't know that I've only, I think I was only on the road alone a couple of times. And I remember that moment when I first found myself alone on in the van. Now, realize when you're in a van, it's like you're on the open ocean. And, you know, you can't have your boat break down. I got, you know, I can tear that engine apart, put it back together. I could build the entire van if I needed to. Uh, wow. And you, you got to find a port, you know, you got to find a harbor, you don't know where you're going. And so there I was alone, and I didn't really know how to do my magic for myself. So I, I'm sitting at the stoplight on a random highway somewhere. And this car pulls up to me, you know, next to me. And, and I don't know why, but they yell, hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? And I say, I don't know. And they go, follow us. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I wow. follow them to this campground where there's this three-day barbecue, just free party. Here's all the food and anything you could possibly need. And suddenly everything was fine. You know, I, I, didn't, I never had to think about what it was going to come from or what I was going to do. It always found me. You know, I remember sitting in a Guatemala in a tent and uh, thinking, damn, I'm hungry. And then these two girls show up and they're like, we got all this food, you know, it's just like that. And you can't explain these kind of moments to people. You don't, mm -hmm. they're so significant to you, you know, the synchronicity. And of course, when I started, the book with Celestine Prophecies hadn't been written yet. And when it was written, then I was like, here's what I'm doing. So to your listeners, uh, the Celestine Prophecies perfectly explained what I was doing and the control dramas that were causing people to not like the people that I brought with me. 
because they would allow their control dramas to get in the way. And I mean, my control drama is typically aloofness. And, uh, you know, which is one of the better control dramas because you're quiet. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but not as uh, annoying. Yeah, exactly. Like an interrogator or an intimidator or something, you know, it would never happen. But you got to get in control of all of that and spread this vibration, this high vibration that people want, or, you know, you're like a light to moths and uh, they find you and they want to be a part of this adventure and they want to keep going. So I had, since, since Alistair Morrison had dropped this thought in my head and I discovered that my dad was a Freemason and that he was working for the government chasing flying saucers, he was building nukes when I was born, uh, all of a sudden all that stuff that I studied as a kid became reality and yet not, okay? I've had UFO experiences, I've had missing time, I have memories of floating out of my house in a red light as a child, I yeah. have missing time and cover memories, but yet I don't believe myself, you know? I don't know if anyone that's had these experiences know how strange that is. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I know for damn sure that on uh, Daytona Beach in 1993, I was sitting there and this giant rectangle hovered out over the ocean. And at that moment, I lost five hours of time, me and a friend. So, you know, it was, it was something that we could compare. And now it was really strange because that friend ended up living in every state that I lived in without us ever knowing that the other was there. We only ran into <laughs> each other once. Wow. Uh, wow. And he's, he's in South Carolina right now. You know, it's crazy. He was in Kansas and I lived in Kansas. He was in Texas and I lived in Texas and he lives in South Carolina now. It's like we're bonded in some strange way. Amazing usually put my story this way but it does kind of fall this way after that five hours of missing time in which when we tried to find our way home we could not remember we couldn't recognize anything so uh you know i'm driving my my house is one street off the highway but i don't know which street it is and you know how you could get home by robotics i think that's how i got home you know it's just my body knew where to go but my mind sure didn't because I remember being so confused. And so after that moment, I don't know, uh, you know, there's stories of people being shown the future and stuff in these type of abductions. Well, I started predicting what was gonna happen to America. And I had this time story mm. that, you know, for 18 years now hasn't changed and it's still going on and it's still exactly what's going on. Incredible. So, I spent a lot of time just wandering and talking, following other nomads like the Grateful Dead heads, although I didn't care about the Grateful Dead. Uh, right. You know, I went to festivals and I, I because these were the other nomads, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I, I would actually say, who is the Grateful Dead and why do they keep following me? The other way around. But eventually I started following the Dead heads, but I hated them. I hated them. They were so material. I couldn't stand the deadheads. They let me starve. Like, you know, oh. they, they wouldn't feed me unless I gave them $5, you know, and mm -hmm. they were just not the people I was. I was more of a rainbow. So rainbow is a collective of people that gathers in the national forest every month, but every year there's a major gathering of 20 to 30,000 of us. 
Wow. And Rainbow is now classified as terrorist organization. Let me just put that in our little tabs uh, because it is. But it's because it's anarchy and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And if mm-hmm. anybody compares this to Burning Man, I'll slap you up in the face. Right. You know, it's no comparison. Everything's right. free. Everything is free. And so I discovered Rainbow about the same time I discovered Freemasonry. So I had this bipolar world going on where every summer I had to pack it up and go out to the woods. There was no stopping me. I'm going to go join my families. You walk around in Rainbow and everybody says, we love you. We love you. You get sick of it. You're like, oh, I know. I know. You know you <laughs> I've been walking for two miles and up a hill just, you know, because I love you. Uh, there's so much love that it's like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but at Rainbow, all these miracles happen, all these little magical acts happen, uh, you know, psychic abilities grow, everything becomes way much more. And you can't explain that to anyone unless you've experienced it. You have to go out there and really, and then you still got to be open to it. You can go out to Rainbow and have a horrible time. It, it reflects you. So, I knew one person that found a death camp. I never heard of a death camp, but that was their aura. You know, that was where they were guided to. I would have never been guided to. And, and, you know, what is it, 15, 16, 20 years I've been going? I've never seen a death camp, you know, but uh, it, it does that. You know, there's so much going on that you can be in any world in there. And sometimes those worlds never meet. So, so what's a death camp? We just have to ask and I'm sure everybody else is, okay. <laughs> it was more like an angry camp where people wanted to do violence on other people. Okay, uh, got it. I've never seen it rainbow myself. Right. But right. this person kind of had an angry attitude and so they ended up finding that. You know, I usually find fairies and giants and, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, right. Well. So, yeah. I, I give you a chance to chime in. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I'm I'm just so totally in tune with the alchemist archetype right now. It's uh, my people know, and I think you know by now that I'm very into archetypes, and uh, that seems to be the archetype energy that was following you, or you know that you were expressing through is a better way to say it, because I don't really think they're like little creatures following you or anything like that. But it's a very high vibration energy that it's you can manifest things just by a single thought. And, you know, by, by, these people always say believing. So here's something that's really fresh in my mind these days. And now, especially after everything that I've been through in the past two and a half years now, and all my, all my beliefs have disappeared, like all of them. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's, um, it's not true at some, in some level, I have to believe that this table's here to put my drink down. I don't know what, how deep it goes, but any of the spiritual beliefs I had, any of the, you know, the, the truth, people who are talking truth are all saying it a little different. There's like, you know, some are saying it really different. And I just found that whole part of my brain dissolved. And frankly, I'm better off for it. And I believe that magic, and, and there's never been a more heightened time for magic in my life as there is right now. And I've seen a lot of magic too. And I, I do believe that just, you know, because there's so much energy that gets consumed in holding on to your position or your, your you know, system for how you see the world or how you think everything goes. 
And then when you just let that energy go and be free and you stay in that place that it really sounds like you were, you were at, you're just like open to, okay, whatever. Innocent is beautiful, beautiful. And then it's, um, yeah, it gives you access to what other people would call magic, but really it's just energy moving is, is my, my take on it. Right. That's why I often call it miraculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely uh, different because for me, magic is um, the idea of imposing your will. Great distinction. Yeah. No, I has. I. I'm sorry. I even use that word because it is such a got a dark connotation. But I've never pro- had a miracle occur that did not involve another human. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It was always somebody Beautiful. that was my angel. One time I decided to, to see what would happen if I instilled angelic energy in myself. So I envisioned these giant wings down my back and I wandered uh, through the Demon Mineral Show at Tucson, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And the whole time I, I imagined these wings. The people that I met, I ended up staying with Gabriella or Gabriel, mm-hmm. my uh, my source of contact that I would go to for, for information and for you know even guidance was Michael. Uh, had parties and pizza with Raphael. Uh, <laughs> it didn't stop. Like everybody <laughs> I met was literally an angel when I was like uh, imagining this, you know? Mm-hmm. It was crazy, it was true. And Amazing. I noticed, you know? And I ended up running into Raphael a couple more times and having parties and pizzas with it, which is what Raphael's known for. And Michael and, and Gabriel, you know, Gabriella took care of me and stuff. And so that was, you know, that was like magic there, you know, where you actually create this reality around yourself. And so in my wanderings, I took on many uh, road trades because you had to have something to allow you to interact with people. So I started making juggling sticks mm-hmm. and I got, I got a set sitting over there still, you know, this was <laughs> 1993, <laughs> I started making those things. <laughs> and it just really allowed me to go meet people. I might make $30, you know, but it was really more of an end to just be able to talk to people. Right. Um, and I did lighter leashes those uh, really kept me moving for quite some time. <laughs> Strangest things. It didn't matter what I did, you know, as long as it was something that would allow me to. So, uh, from from that, from wandering around talking with everybody to get to how I ended up talking publicly like this, I landed in Austin, Texas. I was living in my van on Christmas Light Street, and. Uh, I was just hanging out for South by Southwest. And uh, so one day I took the, the, the city bus uh, just to, I don't know where I was going, you know, but the van stayed on Christmas Light Street. I'd take the bus or walk. Because <laughs> um, you couldn't afford to move. You know what I mean? I didn't have money. Right. Uh, right. So <laughs> uh, I met this homeless guy on the bus. He was this gray haired, greasy breathed back gray hair with one white eye kind of creepy looking but so happy and he comes bouncing over to me and he's like you look interesting can i talk to you <laughs> and i'm like sure 
So, you know, that's a key ingredient too, is, you know, saying yes instead of no. People so often will sit there and think of all the reasons why they should not do something. And, you know, and, and uh, so that was always a key ingredient was saying yes. So this homeless man named Zoe, uh, we get into a conversation about the Keys of Enoch, which just happened to be the only book I brought with me. I don't even know why I bring books. I never read them. But I brought that one because it was easily just to use for reference or, you know, you could open the pages and just feel it. Uh, it's a strange book by J.J. Hertak, which I've never actually made it all the way through. But we ended up talking about that. And then he's like, can I do your numerology? Can I do your numerology? And I'm like, sure. So he gets off on my bus stop with me and starts wandering with me and my friends. Uh, and it turns out that he's living in a van about four blocks from where I'm living in my van. <laughs> and one day he leaves a note on the windshield of my van and says, you got to go to the mall and see this guy talk. And he gives me all the bus numbers to take. And so I'm like, okay. So I jump in the bus and I go off to the mall. It's this rinky-dink mall in Austin, Texas with nobody in it. And I'm wandering through this dead mall, wondering what the heck I'm walking into. And I go into this room and I already know like six to 10 people in that room. I'd only been in Austin for a weekend, but all these people, they knew each other. And you know, these types of things happen to me a lot, right? But uh, so I'm in this room, I'm with these people, I'm, I'm now networking because now they all know each other and I didn't know that. And um, I'd already been telling my story, uh, you know, the conspiracy story that I had to tell of how I predicted 9-11, what shock and awe really meant, how I saw the downfall of America coming and mm -hmm. how they were going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so these were a lot of things that I would discuss and along with ancient civilizations and some high strangeness and all of that. But this was my main thing uh, was symbolic gestures that I was witnessing. No one knew any of this stuff before me, right? Like right. it didn't exist. I, I deciphered corporate logos and their occult meanings. No one had done that before me. Mm -hmm. And then that, that knowledge that I had created through hard study of research of Freemasonry, because I got so into it when I found out my family and it's all deep into this, I wanted to know everything there was. So I studied every ritual. I've been to every lodge. I've been to more Freemason lodges than 90% of Freemasons. Right? <laughs> all over the country, all over the world. You know, you can add Sydney, Byron Bay, um, London, you know, uh, uh, everywhere I went. I, I would go and find the Mason Temple and go get a tour and go learn, find out more. So I knew everything about their rituals, their secrets, and all of that. And so when I started seeing things, they suddenly took on all this symbolic meaning. Uh, you know, if you see just a canted square like the E of Dell, all right, you see that canted E in many uh, corporate logos, right? It's just a, it's tilted a little bit like Dell. Uh, right. I can't think of any off my hand right now, but there's a lot of canted squares. That actually has meaning inside of a lodge. And if you know the ritual, then you know that canted square actually represents the three times you orbit the altar inside of a Masonic lodge. And it also symbolizes Osiris, Horus, and Isis. And so when I started seeing corporate logos, all of a sudden they all took on ritual meaning. And I realized, oh my God, these are secret signs of allegiance so that 
corporations can tell which other corporations are in the group, you know? And right. that's all, that's all that these meant. And suddenly my work was taken and it was said to be magic and they were practicing spells and that pentagram on Texaco is, is cursing you, you know? But that's not it, you know? They were just like secret winks and nods so that anybody that knew the rituals would recognize the symbols immediately. High profile rituals in politics and in um, music awards, and, you know, in the Super Bowl and stuff. I created that concept, or I, I, I discovered it, right? Like right. no one was, I discovered it back in with Y2K. And, right. uh, you know, so high profile rituals, occult, all of a sudden this world was not at all what I thought it was, right? By 99, everything changed. After 99, I never got another job. Wow. I have never filled out another job application. I said, sorry. And I was working at Kansas University and I told them, hey, I, I quit, I'm gone. And they're like, you're gonna back out of a university uh, referral? You know, like, what are you, crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yep, he's out. <laughs> there you go. I'm never getting a job again. And I haven't. There's another, job. yeah, there's another little synchronicity. It was 99 when, when I was kicked out of my last VP job as well. So that was, uh, that was same exact same year. Right. You yeah. Know, at, that, at that time, everything changed. The whole world changed for me because that was when I saw the, the true symbolic gestures of what was going on. The Y2K ritual was a massive ritual. Uh, and, you know, you could say it was to Lucifer, but that's always so confusing to people. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a solar deity ritual that they did for Y2K across the country. Every nation was involved, Paris and London, America. Uh, they all did the same type of ritual, but if you weren't in click, if you didn't know, and you would never even notice, you know, like, why is Bill Clinton saying it is a rising sun? You know, what? the whole audience is like, because um. <laughs> that was his, like, conclusion. It is a rising sun. And everybody's just like, uh. but wow. there was meaning, there was purpose in all of it, and it was done from nation to nation to nation, so this was a global thing instead of simple one nation. I just want to highlight how that, now I don't know how many people in my world are taking it for granted. Now I kind of do because I can look anywhere and start to recognize some of those symbols, but thanks to you and those people that have been doing that work and they've got a lot, those signs and symbols and those rituals that are taking place like at the Super Bowl and the halftime shows and all that kind of thing. They're so obvious now. No, they're, they're so obvious, but they weren't back then. They were, they were having to be a lot more subtle in order to get away with. It's been so many years of deconditioning people from, you know, people used to have morals on, on, on the whole in humanity, right? Like you couldn't have full frontal um, satanic ritual abuse on Netflix yeah, in that day. CBS. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, is it CBS? Maybe I've been saying Netflix all this time because I got that from you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Fallen CBS. Angel. Yeah, Fallen CBS. Angel, right. Uh, Strange Angel. Strange Angel. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so I just want to give you credit for how seeing it back then and being somebody who saw it coming like that. Because, you know, how many people called you nutball for that? Everybody? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the crowds would gather around me to listen, but having my information repeated <laughs> wasn't going to happen, you know? Right. Um, so let's go to the darkness a little bit, because I know that you asked this question, you know, mm -hmm. when did it make you frightened? And when mm -hmm. did it stress you out? Mm -hmm. So let's, let's go there, because we're in that point. Sure. Um, now at this point, okay, well, let me, let me just conclude with Zoe. So I'm in this bus with this homeless dude and he brings me to the mall. The, the meeting at the mall turns out to be George Green, who was uh, Bill Clinton's financial, no, Jimmy Carter's financial advisor. Uh, my dad was also friends with Carter, but um, they were in a submarine together. But, um, so who knows? If, Jimmy and my dad were chasing aliens together. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but so, I mean, that's true, guys. It's true. My dad was in Project Blue Book. It's, you know, it's not like I knew about it or anything, but he told me. Um, but so anyway, uh, this guy, George Green, comes in, and he's sharing the message from these extraterrestrials known as the Palladians, only now they're going by Blajarans, I guess. And he went out to Billy Meyer in Switzerland and met with the Blajarans and uh, published their book for them, which was called Handbook for a New Paradigm. Now, I've read Handbook for a Paradigm a number of times, and I don't agree or get it or vibe with it whatsoever. So I do not promote it. I do not, uh, you know, anyway, I don't know where that came from. Um, Palladian works, Barbara Hanquo, uh, Barbara Marciniak. I love those things, you know, those were some that really changed my world. Um, Can you say what the Palladians are, just not to skip past that? Sure. So there's a belief in extraterrestrial influences on planet Earth, mm -hmm. and that some of these extraterrestrials come to planet Earth, and some of them incarnate as people or are uh, just been around for a while, uh, or they show up um, in their flying saucers in Switzerland. And I've always loved Palladies. I've always felt attracted to Palladies, and I always thought I was Palladian incarnated here on earth you know, i believed that most of my life i didn't even know there were other palladians out there i would just look up at the seven sisters uh, that's the palladies it's that little teeny uh, dipper up in the sky oh the very little dipper i call it yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's always so clustered together and bright and beautiful and i've always been attracted to palladies and i've always longed to go back home there uh, so the palladians when i found that there were other people like attracted and feeling like they were from Palladies and people like Barbara Hanquo and uh, Barbara Marciniak start writing books on it. Uh, it really touched me and they talked exactly of what was going to come and the, the technologies that would offer. They, they mentioned things like radionics and uh, organite and such long before we ever knew what this was or, you know, anybody was making that. You know, it was early 90s that the Palladians came forward. And it really, it really shaped a lot of my belief. Uh, um, but at the same time, I don't believe, you know what I mean? Like, I'm always in that juxtaposition of like, these people are crazy, but yet I'm crazy too, right? Uh, that's all there is to it. All we can do is go with what we feel. So, yeah, there, at some point, there's, there's like a knowing that transcends believing there's just it's like you've got that that's the organite that you just showed us right mm -hmm. you, you've got you've just got that there's there's a knowing like 
I doubt it's a, it's a belief in that. It's just a knowing that if you have that behind you, there's a certain protection from, is it the EMF that's, that protects you from, or? Yeah, that one's actually a power generator from a Masaki uh, Miyagawa that, uh, it has a rodent coil inside of it and has a power supply that attaches to a frequency generator. So you can actually set this to 432 megahertz or whatever, uh, according to chakra. And then it pulses that out in different waveforms. So this one's, this one's top of the line. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Akaida.com if you want to. I'm, I'm having him on the show this weekend. So oh, nice. Nice. Very good. He sent that as a gift. This is amazing. Uh, so yeah, extraterrestrial connections, we all tend to feel it. There are others, you know, the Orions, which uh, really strangely, if you look into the definition that the Orions are described as and the definition or the description of who the Pleiadians are, uh, they actually fit the, the crown and the Vatican perfectly. It's strange and very bizarre uh, that mm -hmm. the the Vatican represents these fish beings, which are more the Palladian view. So you'll often see, you know, the Pope wears the Dagon hat, the fish head hat, and often it'll have a giant shell on his chest. And uh, these type of watery signs will be on the Pope and within the Vatican. And so that reflects more of the Palladian view than the Orions, or the Syrians, excuse me, the Syrians is another race of Sirius, which all secret societies, uh, specifically Freemasonry, worship Sirius. Mm -hmm. So all those pentagrams that you see around actually are a symbol for Sirius to them. It's called the blazing star. And every lodge worships Sirius. Don't know why, right? But they do, as the right. Egyptians did. And so did the Mayans. So Sirius, of course, being the brightest star in the sky, the dog star, uh, it's, you know, it's one thing, but yet it's bizarre that they would all worship the star. And the Syrians, they fit the, the military uh, monarchy scenarios of taking control and doing, uh, I've given lectures on this that, that show how mm -hmm. these, you know, because no, yeah, again, no one had ever put that together before. And when you see the Pope, Aegon hat and all of that, fits um so there i was in this mall at this george green giving out these books and he's you know he, he's like i can make you a billionaire and just snap on my fingers you know that's his dig but anyway uh I, we, we took a small break and i was outside explaining what shock and awe actually really meant right because shock and awe the shock and awe campaign when they blew up baghdad uh, Shekinah is actually a play on the Hebrew word Shekinah, which is the feminine force of God. And so when you look at what happened at, uh, with Saddam Hussein, he was claiming to be Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated. Uh, world leader, uh, it, it wasn't hidden. You know, he had statues of himself as Nebuchadnezzar. He had paintings commissioned of himself as Nebuchadnezzar. He announced that he was Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated. <laughs> You know, wow. uh, and and they uh, they attack with the Shekinah, the, the feminine force of God, the Shakna, and they use the mother of all bombs, which was the Moab, uh, which is the forces that battled the next against Nebuchadnezzar was the Moabites. So there was all this like symbolic things going on, and I'm telling this story, and I'm telling how I predicted 9/11 and how that all fell together, 
and this really tall alien looking guy came storming up to me and he's like you need a tv show and i'm like what are you talking about he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and i'm like i don't know and he's like no seriously i'll write you a check right now uh for the you know the fees to to start the television show if you'll do it amazing i'm i'm in austin for the weekend i live on my van on christmas light street you know 37th street for those that don't know but it's the one street where all the christmas lights go up. i didn't know that when i was parked there but anyway <laughs> um i did eventually because i stayed for five more years um because i said i sat there looking at him like would i really do this can i do this um is that that's the weirdest noise uh, uh somebody's brakes i'm close to the road here oh okay <laughs> so i'm you know I, i've got about five minutes or less to decide my whole future right here and there would you do it and i said yeah yeah let's do awesome. it let's do it I'll awesome it. and he wrote me the check and there was 180 dollars you know and all the money in the world to me right yeah and i went down and i handed it over to austin access television turned out this guy was george humphrey who was the city councilman that started access television i had no idea wow yeah he even sat me down in front of uh senator bob bowman to tell my whole story one time and i freaked <laughs> bob bowman and his wife out and they were like, yeah, we're, we're aware of this type of thing, but we don't really look at it. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, you're going to now. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do? Now somebody's given me a television studio, you know, but of course that meant it was going to take me, uh, you know, a year to learn how to run a television studio, you know, how to run these cameras. You had to take all these different courses and, they were handing you, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment and you were just gonna walk out the door with it, you know? <laughs> uh, so I had to learn and I, and so that was a big part of it. But okay. throughout the learning, and there was no technology for this. There was no um, consumer-based video editing equipment. There certainly was no Zoom. Right. <laughs> there was no internet. There was no, I mean, the, you know, the internet, the World Wide Web was there, but it was in its littlest form. Uh, there was no YouTube. There was no Google. Uh, like when I made my Corporate Logos documentary, I had to drive around and take pictures of all the corporate logos. There was no Google images, you know. Yeah. And I just remember how hard it was to find a Texaco in Texas. It took me forever oh, to get that stupid <laughs> picture there. Uh, so, it, you know, being in that world too, coming from the last of the paper people and going into this digital era and being right in that transition point where I was working with linear editing, which means if you make a mistake, you got to start the entire project over. You can't just drag and drop. And it, that's another thing. I was in computers back in TRS 80s, you know, programming basic and stuff. Okay. And I, I'm blown away by drag and drop and touch screen, you know, because I know coding at the basic, basic level. I could, right. I could go to computer to play a game, you know what I mean? A word game, but we didn't have visuals, right? We just had, you know, this glorified typewriter 
but I was so amazed that I could make that glorified typewriter say things that I wanted it to say, you know, that code in. <laughs> but when you start that way and then you see what's going on now, I mean, you're like, oh my God, this is magic, sorcery. <laughs> <laughs> Touch screen, drag and drop, uh, video conferencing, you know, all of this stuff is, you know, people don't even think about it. Yeah. It's true. Even those of us that have been through the transition don't think about it anymore. It's just so taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was working my way towards the sad story. Um, because this is hard. It is hard. You know, when somebody suddenly you're put in front, like, I mean, first of all, if for that television studio, I was alone in a room staring at a camera. I had to talk to this thing like it was people. And, you know, that right. took a lot of practice. I remember the first time I stuck myself in front of that camera live on television, you know, uh, and I didn't know what to say. I was like 15 minutes in. It was only a half an hour show at that time, and I'm sweating, you know. <laughs> it was the rainbow episode, if anybody wants to see it, you know. About 15 minutes halfway through the show, I didn't know what to say anymore. But now I could talk six hours, right? Yeah. Um, but it then, as you get deeper and deeper into this story, it gets darker and darker, right? You can start with the mystery of uh, secret societies, the Dan Brown version of reality, right? Mm -hmm. Like Dan Brown wasn't even out when I did this, right? Like the the, the Da Vinci Code didn't exist. Uh, in film form when I was putting out the Freeman perspective. It, I, I beat Dan Brown to the punch, you know what I mean? Wow. Um, and he never explained anything, whereas I did, right? Yeah. So he'll show you that pentagram on the lady, on the, the curator's chest laying there dead on the floor in the movie, but he'll never tell you what that pentagram meant. He'll keep telling you, well, I know what it means, but they, you know, they kept these secrets secret, whereas I was blurting them out to the world, you know? Right. And then you start to learn of trauma-based mind control. You start to learn of nefarious programs and projects. You start to realize that these celebrities aren't, they're, they're tools in a black magician's uh, bag. And they're treated as such, you know, they're, and no one, no one believed me, right? I, I took, I took all the information I had gathered from Kathy O'Brien, Transformation of America. Fritz I was just going to ask. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, how did you discover that really dark side? Kathy O'Brien was one of your contacts. Okay, so one thing that I would say, well, no, not at this point. She's a good okay. friend now. Yeah. Uh, but um, I've always said I never went looking for this information. It came and found me. I was right. never once trying to find this information. It just, I was an open vessel for it though, and, and it liked me. So, you know, mm -hmm. books would literally fall in my lap uh, and things and information and stuff. Mm -hmm. that I, mm -hmm. So I can't really say when, at this moment, I can't recall exactly when that moment was triggered, but I had, I had garnered so much information that when I saw it, when it was Anna Nicole, it was the death of Anna Nicole and the breakdown of Britney Spears. And no one yet had covered this in real time. 
So with the Anna Nicole story, I saw every aspect of trauma-based mind control that I had studied being represented in Anna, Anna Nicole's life and death. Mm. And so it all just was so clear to me. And it was, it was, <laughs> it was the perfect timing. Terrifying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I, I put this story out. I did the television show about it and I did a show with Red Ice. When I began to present this information, I realized how dangerous that could be. It fills you full of despair and paranoia as you start to read things like Program to Kill from David McGowan, who has also passed. Uh, and you realize that there is a force within court systems, police, and everything that hides all of this stuff and uses serial killers as covers for satanic ritual abuse. And you start learning this deep, dark secrets of, uh, of the cabal. And then you start telling people about it and they all go, oh, you know, whatever. You know, a lot of times with, with, because I was associating my study with Anna Nicole, they were always like, oh, I'm glad that bitch is dead. And mm. they could not see the picture at all through the icon. All they could see was Anna Nicole. They didn't see what I was saying about mind control or anything like that. And I see mm -hmm. this over and over again, where people get caught up in the identity of the person instead of the, the effects of what's going on. And mm -hmm. so uh, all of my concerns. I was just gonna ask you an obvious question. What, what in your experience was the motive to, to put all of this out, to take this huge risk? How did that? You gotta wonder, right? because it terrified me to do it. It intrigued me enough to do the study. And what I discovered was so amazing and fascinating um, that, and I already had a television show. So I didn't know I was gonna be doing this, but um, you know, it just kept coming, it kept coming and it didn't change and the story was there and, and I, I just, I was compelled to share it. But after I shared it on Red Ice Creations, it suddenly dawned on me that I was slapping Satan in the face and no one even believed me except Satan himself, right? Right. And so even all the truthers that I was around, all the people in Austin, Texas, you know, that have formed there, there was a real large community there, you know, because of InfoWars and everything else and the Brave New Worlds. Yeah. Uh, even though I was surrounded by people who were into this type of information, they kept telling me, I was like, oh no, you know, you don't have anything to worry about. They're not coming after you. They're not gonna do anything to you. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, no one has exposed this like I just did. I even asked Red Ice to remove the second hour of my interview mm. because I was so frightened. I was so frightened after I did the show. Now, sometimes I think I was under attack, but I don't usually think that way. But there were quite a few times where I felt microwaved, where I would start to burn from within and just sit wow. there. And, uh, I turned around after I did that show with Red Ice and I, I looked at my roommate and he says, are you on drugs? And I'm like, no. And he's like, uh, 
what's wrong? And I explained to him how frightened I was about what I had just done. And he said, I can't live with this. And he moved out. You know, that's wow. how frightening it was. Wow. And I got lost because there was no one to turn to. There was nowhere for me to go. No one believed me. I felt like one of the trauma-based, because when you study trauma-based mind control, you traumatize yourself. It's drama. It's traumatic. Yes. I couldn't get off the floor. I was crying for months. Yes. Yeah. If I didn't have in me that pool, you know, when I started, I was juggling with a little black and white spotted dog at my feet. I was literally the fool. Now I was the magician, you know, uh, but if I didn't still have that fool in me, I wouldn't have known what to do. If I had just stood where I was and let it all eat me, I would have, you know, I probably wouldn't be here now. I probably, oh, I don't mean suicide or anything like that. <laughs> Let's make that clear. But yeah. I wouldn't have continued to produce content. Um, I meant literally here <laughs> talking to you. Right? Yeah, got it. <laughs> um, got it. That's a good but, distinction. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, there's been plenty of things in my life that, that could have caused uh, such despair, but uh, it's not in me. Uh, I knew the fool was in me again, and, and so I just took off. I went on, I just left, and I, I, I went and you know, I was heading back home, back to mom, you know, just to find a place of safety for a minute. And of course, that ended up being a magical trip that I ended up filming. It became a whole other movie I call Sorceress of Atlantis. Which I just watched. Uh, yeah. 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 Oh, you yeah. saw the Amazing. lecture. You saw the lecture. I, I also oh, made sorry. A video. I, Sorceress of Atlantis, I've used the title three times now, so it can get a little confusing. Okay. Uh, I was going to say the title, and then you just reminded me. But uh, yeah, that's you, so everyone should go and look for that lecture and as well the film. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yes, it was terrifying, and there was no support group, even amongst peers, even amongst people that know these things. No mm -hmm. one wanted to feel like I was in any danger at all. And this makes me think a lot about Tracy Twyman, of course, because we just found out that she just took her life. Uh, story the report is that she hung herself. And she was deep into all of this in the same boat. And maybe she had no support group to go to. Maybe nobody believed that it was really a big deal what she was doing, because that's what I was constantly told. You know, oh, it's no big deal, you know, and you, you can't do anything about this and, you know, things like that. And uh, when you don't have a support group, you don't have anything to go to, then that's when you fall into serious despair. Because if you've got this darkness in your soul and you got nowhere to put it and no one to you know, nurture you, then that's when you fall apart. And I fell apart. I did. Uh, but because I know of the magic of the road, I just took off. Because I can leave. I can walk out my door. I know this. This is not a belief. <laughs> I yeah. can walk out my door right now and I can cross this whole country for the next four or five months if I wanted to without a thought, without anything. I could go without anything on my back and I would be completely fine the entire time. And this was long before I was the famous Freeman, you know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. people think, well, you could do it because people know you. But no, I've done this all, you know, for 25 years. So uh, I've only been doing the show for 15, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so it is terrifying, horrifying. And you feel like, oh my God, I just slapped Satan in the face and no one knows and they don't believe me and they don't understand uh, that this was a very dangerous thing that I just did. And honestly, I don't talk about it anymore, you know? I don't, I don't go chasing that demon anymore. I did it, right? I exposed it. Here it is. Uh, you now know. And now the rest of the world knows, right? We're what? 10, 14. Well, how long has it been since I did Anna Nicole? Uh, you know, it was like 2006 or something like that. So like 13 years ago. And now all of a sudden everybody knows about Epstein and everybody knows about everything. And, you know, so it's really different now. Uh, but of course, everybody's got it all wrong. <laughs> I hear you. Still trying to get them to get it right, but you know, you can just keep repeating yourself. So that is there. There is the terror. There's the terror of sitting in front of that silly camera there and, and access and going live on television. This was not something I would ever do. I'm not that kind of person. The, and if it weren't for my little pets, I don't think I would have ever gotten through any of this. You know, if it weren't for those little furry critters in my life. Um, but let's take this where you want to go. Uh, let's yeah, I, I'm curious what gave you the courage to get past that point of literally, you know, dealing with these dark forces and being that only voice and not having that community at that point for like what you created for me uh i had one friend luckily i could talk to about this this stuff and so that was a lifeline to go through and now i've met lots of people who are willing to get past that but so how do you get through when you're the leader when you're actually the one you know how do you not go down and, and you said you took to the road, but what, what gave you that courage? What do, you, what do you think it was? Well, I mean, you know, 10 years on the road and living a miraculous life. Um, I came back to my senses, realized that the threat wasn't as big as my brain was making it to be. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, maybe it, there was a moment where I got a certified letter to my PO box and I had to sign for it. And it came from the exact place where uh, Anna Nicole's lawyer was. And I was like, oh God, I'm not gonna sign this. I'm not gonna open it. And so I avoided it, avoided it, it terrified me. And I was in a state of, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, and mm -hmm. I wasn't gonna go get that letter. But finally, I just, I don't know, grabbed my balls and went. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I uh, I went down and I signed for that letter and it was a donation, you know, from a doctor or someone. Uh, it wasn't at all what I feared. And uh, I think that kind of just kind of cracked the ice for me at that moment. But it was really just going Beautiful. back on the road and, and then, yeah, challenging myself to get back in front of the camera. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's awesome. I think you start to gain some like it, it, they call it an awakening, right? Compared to the new age awakening where it's this enlightenment and you're gonna realize you're this uh, transcendent being. And this kind of awakening is, is just seeing what's right in front of you. That when you go to the bank, when you go to the grocery store, when you take, drop your kids off at school, when you go to work every day, people do that more so because they don't see what's happening, right? As soon as I saw what was going on in the institutions, 
then bringing my kid to school was like a whole different thing. Oh my God. It was just, uh, just, you know, listening to someone like Stephen Verstappen that I've met on your podcast and going to the grocery store. Now I never take it for granted. And I see celery shoots up to $9 and I'm like, okay, it's kind of, yeah, things are going like you said they were and uh, running off to Costco to, to store up three to six months worth of groceries and bringing my kid along, telling him what we're, what we're actually doing. I shouldn't have to tell him that we're preparing for this apocalyptic kind of event. Uh, I shouldn't have to tell him about pedophilia and the rise of it in, in the world right now, but that's, that's more, that's the kind of awakening that's, that's going on here. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it is a very courageous thing because it's just so much, say, say with the archetypes, it's, it's the child archetype that doesn't want to look and see how bad things actually have become out there. And it's not like they just, that just happened. This has been going on for what centuries already. Right. right? And it's just that, that kind of awakening, it's, it builds muscle. It builds something that um, an author I'm following now, Nassim something Taleb, uh, he wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. Right. And, you know, on the whole, we're finding humanity in a very fragile state. And it's because they won't just look and see that taxation is theft, as, as the anarchopoco Jeff, um, I don't remember his name offhand, last name is, is spreading this message and all of these kind of things that our, our freedom hinges on us not seeing and staying locked in belief systems that are just some kind of like tangent side thing that, that siphons off our strong emotions and gives us a place to, you know, rest or land. But really it's all just a mechanism for keeping us separate from each other and and fighting like, you know, that, that force that's trying to keep us down barely has to do anything right now. We're keeping ourselves down. We're fighting each other. We're, you know, I see the, some of the best people in my life are, are doing this, coming head to head. Uh, you know, it's, it's so bizarre. And I think if I'm leading to any kind of a question is how do you maintain that state of hope that just kind of exudes out of your, out of your being that, you know, what is that? Can can you teach that to anybody? I don't think I can. <laughs> you know, synchronicity is one of those things that uh, if you don't experience it, you won't believe it. And if you don't believe it, you won't experience it. Uh, you know, it's catch 22. But at the same time, I can. Uh, just oh, good. example, <laughs> you know, uh, life examples, because creative play is at the heart of humanity. It always has been. It's where everything comes from. It's uh, you know, it's how buildings get built. It's how cars become cars. You know, creative play is humanity's uh, true gift. And this is just sort of interrupt, but that's the light side of the child. So that's right. the same archetype. It's just now it's out. It's not asleep anymore. Right. So go on, please. Uh, so finding finding the creative play in life, you know, it's, it's the difference between being home free and going on a vacation, you know, vacation is very planned, very sorted. It stresses you out. You have to meet schedules. You have to be on time. You got to do all that. Whereas home free and you just get in your van, you don't know where you're going and everything turns out awesome. 
no one believes that, right? They think they need to settle and, and set up everything and know where they're gonna land and what's gonna happen the moment they get there and all of that. And that's the big fault, the, the big flaw in humanity's thinking is this lack of faith and the, the miraculous, the synchronistic, and then the inability, again, to uh, set your ego aside because none of this works if you don't, right? Um, so uh, it, it's, it's a world that's surrounding everyone that I've been watching close in. And, you know, every, every free space that I used to inhabit, you can't go there now. Police forces, fences, things like that. Uh, it's very hard to be free now. Um, yet you still can. Right? Like I took a school bus around the United States to prove to everybody what I'm saying. I was like, okay, look, 2012, I'll take a school bus around the entire United States. You guys know I have no money. I'm not getting paid to do what I do. I didn't get paid to do what I do until just recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll take this school bus because I was gonna be homeless anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll just buy a school bus and I'll tour the country for 2012, do Woody Harrelson bit, right? And I'll show you the end of the world. And I ended up being the most interesting thing that happened in 2012. And I filmed it all and broadcast it through YouTube, but nobody noticed. And I wanted to show everybody that this is possible. And so I'm going to take the most impossible vehicle, a thing that gets two miles to the dollar, right? Two mm -hmm. miles to the dollar. Get this, all right? If you don't get this, if you miss your exit, it costs 10 bucks. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not an exaggeration. $10 to miss your exit, right? <laughs> yeah. And here I am completely broke, completely just on the road in this big bus. And I'm broadcasting it to everyone so that they can see that this miraculous thing can happen. But I made the big mistake of thinking people go to your website. This is where I learned a big lesson. Nobody goes to your website. If it's not in the feed, it doesn't exist. So if you're not throwing it in Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all of that, if it's not going out in the feed, uh, then no one notices. I started a second YouTube channel for the bus because I didn't want to clutter up the Freeman channel with the bus stories. So I made Miss Emily, uh, it was our mystery school mobile media lab experiment, Miss Emily. And uh, no one noticed. There's probably like 60 views on any of that stuff. Everybody asked me why I quit. Why'd you quit? You know, and I'm like, I didn't quit. I was proving miracles to you. Here I was just proving it to you. I did it, you know, and you could have watched it all live. Uh, the miracle people that I met, the things that happened. I mean, it was kind of weird because we were the death toll of every Occupy. So that was the year 2012, Occupy was going big. And every time the bus showed up at Occupy, that night they rousted and ran off everybody. We were always gone by then, but everywhere we went, and I hit every Occupy without trying. I wasn't trying to be there. And every time I was there, it was the night that they got rousted. It was really weird. I ended up doing Amazing. a sacred spiral around the United States without trying. Uh, I was just going by emails. People said, hey, bring your bus to my house. And of course, I would have about a total of three days before the cops had me you know, have to move the bus. Can't park a bus here, you know. Uh, usually about three days was as long as I could keep that bus anywhere. But we ended up making a sacred spiral around the United States perfectly. 
from the dead center of the United States in Lawrence, Kansas. And we ended up doing the Merry Pranksters, the 60s bus trip in reverse and had no idea that we did that. To the point that we landed in La Honda in the school bus. Somebody gave me a Ken Kesey, who was the school bus owner, uh, gave me his book, his jail journal. I opened up the book and it says, when I bought this bus in La Honda, I was in La Honda with my bus. You know? <laughs> it was crazy. Holy. And it's almost like we undid that 60s spell or something, you know, it was weird. Uh, I don't know what happened or what came of that, but something did. I promise you that. I promise you that. But so I tried to show people. I tried to show them that there is a miraculous world and that it involves interaction with other humans, that we could live in this perfectly unified system that has no authority and uh, uh, anarchy that actually works in beauty and rainbow, of course, the rainbow gatherings are another classic example of this uh, complete anarchy. That's why they're a terrorist group because they show that humans don't need authority to uh, have everything go wonderfully. And trying to teach people that they could just, my phrase is quit your job, save the world. And you don't I have love to that. do anything but quit your job. Right? If everybody quit their jobs, the world would be saved. Because you would be compelled, you would be forced into this synchronistic example of life. You wouldn't have a choice. Like I didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you'd just discover it. You'd realize it's all true. The world is miraculous and you're an angel. You know? oh. Beautiful. We would make a good team. You, you can get them to quit their job because I don't want to have any part of convincing them to do that because I think that they've got to have the, the courage and, and be able to actually put themselves out there in that kind of unknown world. But yeah. once they do that, thanks to you, then you can send them to me to uh, help them build a business and live on their wits. That right. uh, really is their, their authentic so sacred purpose. It. Yeah, that's just it. You know, you open yourself to your purpose, right? You quit this job, but you don't, you can't quit. You know, I had to work, I had to earn money in ways and things and do things, you know, uh, but you, you suddenly are transitioned into a more purposeful existence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's your take on purpose in, in general? I like to ask everybody this. What's, you know, do, do you have a sense that you're on your purpose when, when you wake up in the morning? Do you, do you have that? sense or what what's your experience with that uh, yeah yeah i mean i could have been nothing else although i would have never thought of this i would have certainly never thought of myself as a public speaker uh i hate being on camera uh you know i don't i've never listened to one of my shows uh, i don't listen to myself oh, wow. at all no wow wow can't do it it drives me crazy. I get so anxious. I, I can't watch myself. Occasionally, occasionally. I, aliens yeah. from hell. I'm so impressed with that. Uh, what keeps me going is like, you know, just challenging myself in art. So aliens mm -hmm. from hell, although it was a PowerPoint on aliens from hell, uh, it was the best PowerPoint production ever. I don't care. You go look and I'm not even talking about the content at all. I'm talking about the amount of time that I spent animating every little aspect of everything. There's not one moment in that lecture that's not animated. I'm hitting the space bar on every word. 
and everything's going off around behind me and stuff. So the joy <laughs> of the art is what has kept me going. When I was making uh, corporate logos in Columbia, my first two TV shows. Now, each half an hour TV show took four months to create. Uh, that included driving around trying to photograph, you know, corporate logos and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I was giddy, you know, when I got to air this to the world. Uh, you know, I made the first documentary on chemtrails. I was the first person to make a documentary. And I lived through chemtrails and I lived through that whole story. I was awake and aware, you know, far beyond what anyone was. And uh, I made the first documentary on harp and its connection with magic you know and i combined those two worlds before anyone else had done so as well combining this concept of high technology with with the occult uh, that story hadn't been told yet either and so making those artworks that's what i am i'm an artist and so you know that's so good yeah so good yeah, it's the ultimate, um, maybe if I can gracefully segue into one of my favorite subjects here that I was talking to somebody you recently interviewed as well, Garrett Daly, and we were talking about the masculine and the feminine archetypes and how creativity is related to that, that once you have this, um, you know, so some people would say balance, but I, I always say balance is bullshit. That's really not about that. But once the masculine and feminine archetypes really come forward, both come to life, and one can only come to life as much as the other comes to life. Guess why? Because they're one thing. They're just two sides of the same coin. And when, when they come to a certain level of awakeness, then the only thing that can happen, because the union is so electric, is that it births, it, it, it creates something right. other than itself. That's its only option. It would like, I don't know, implode or something. It's like a union between a man and a woman when, when it's such a powerful connection. And then they give birth literally to another being through that. And right. so it's one of my missions to show people so men to women and women to men and how this is something that if we don't get a handle on the the way we've been brainwashed trauma trauma controlled to feel like we're in opposition to each other and how important our roles are to each other i know it's not a, a big subject of yours but i'm really curious to see what your take on this masculine feminine and men and women and you know what what do you think first of all is is a solution for that war and second of all as a very like powerful leader i will call you a king hero that's that's what i call you in my in my world you know how can we support you how can we hold you up how can we um you know what what do you need from women what do you need from your audience, my audience, in order to keep going and, and get even stronger as a leader. Yeah, there's uh, not a lot of nurture in the world. And all of my time on the road, I did not see a woman, right? So there was a good decade there where I was alone. Uh, I'm not a normal human. I have never, you know, I don't fit in at all. Um, 
as I'm sure many feel that way, but you know, I, I got years and years to prove that I'm, I'm beyond certain things or, you know, I don't know. It just like the universe does not present a feminine energy for me on the road. Um, it was a bizarre thing to me. I'm like, I, I'm at all the greatest things in the world. I'm in the most beautiful settings. I'm in the most amazing events and not even a girl to reject me, you know? It wasn't even a chance for rejection. It wasn't even like I wasn't trying or anything. They're just, the universe did not present that to me. And there is very little nurture in the world. And I, as, but we, we bring that upon ourselves. So I, at least that's what I would, began to think because I would see other people getting massages and nurture and things of that nature, but it was never uh, offered to me. And I don't know whether I created that mindset uh, or, or why I was isolated as I was, but I was. Um, so that was a big part to me was, was finding some sort of nurture because I, I, you know, I just always suffer alone. You know, I don't have anyone that feeds me, takes care of me, or you know, any of that. And uh, it's it's rare if, if it happens. Um, for me, I guess because now I'm, you know, I'm I'm 52. Uh, I don't expect there to be another life than that. But who knows what the universe has to offer? But right now, I don't. I don't believe that I'll have a relationship because I'm certainly not going to produce a family or anything at this age. Um, so I've kind of resigned myself to being my own feminine energy. Um, but as far as the work goes, I, I wish people would take my information and use it. I, I, I see so often when I'm trying to get this information out and then I'm blamed or said that I, it's egotistical that I want you to know that I did this and it's not the case. I don't care what I tell you are facts. So I don't care if you use, you know, mention me at all, just use the facts because everything has gotten so distorted that people will believe anything. And I come mm -hmm. from the era of reading. I'm the last of the paper people, you know. I come mm -hmm. from an era of reading, and and you know the limits to knowledge when you read, and you know uh, because now you could say anything, and you can prove anything you want on the internet. You know, if you want to prove there's an Illuminati that rules the world through magical rituals, you can prove that. It's not true. It's not true because you got the wrong names, you got the wrong ideas, you don't know the concepts. Um, of what it really means, you know. So, um, the the financial support came last. Like I did the whole show. I did you know, four, 10 years of shows without getting a dime. I, you know, occasional donations here and there, and occasional DVD sales, uh, but very rarely. I think I sell a DVD once a year, <laughs> maybe. Um, I can help you with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, now we've got the member section. Okay, so this was something I did want to say to you uh, on your show was I was being, uh, oh, what do you call the word? Um, altruistic. 
right? And I just wanted the information out. I wanted everybody to be able to get it. And I didn't think about myself. And so I did this all, but then every month I would beg, you know, at the end of the month, like, hey guys, I'm about to be homeless. There's 6,000 of you listening to me right now because there were 6,000 people that usually listen to my show live back when it started. And I'm like, there's 6,000 of you, you know, 10% of you sent me a dollar, I could pay my rent. Mm. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. I, I, wow. I would maybe get two, three dollars. You know, there's 6,000 people, well, a total of 30,000 people once it made it to YouTube. And, you know, once it, my show, you know, 6,000 was live. And then there were another 20, 30,000 after the live show. So, the, you know, we're talking 30,000 people that could have given me a dollar and and made it so that i wasn't homeless but they didn't and so that's when the school bus came in uh, my mom paid half my bills for most of my career and then um uh the bus came along you know here i was i'm like guys you know i'm gonna be homeless at the end of the month uh you know anybody want to send a dollar and of course no one did and then I said, well, okay, I'm going to be homeless. Would 25 of you send me $30 and I'll buy a school bus? That was no problem. I suddenly had six grand. Like, no problem. Yeah, here, we'll send you money for a bus, but we're not going to send you a dollar to, to spare your rent or we don't think a dollar is worth sending, you know? And we're in the age of minimum input, maximum output, right? So a million people have listened to my show. Millions of people have listened to my show. I'd right. How, how many views do you have on YouTube right now? Uh, well, I have 120,000 subscribers, but I have videos that have well over a million views. Yeah. Do and you have I like was on a, Google before that? Right. I had right. millions and millions of views on Google. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Millions and millions. And yet here I am, completely broke, uh, just barely going to, you know, make it again. And I, but I, I managed to get it to where uh, my system keeps me afloat. I make exactly what I need and I, I don't, you know, uh, I get to share a little bit, spend a little bit, you know, now. Um, but the member section ended up working. So the point being was that when I forced people into, I say forced them into, I, you know, I hid information on the World Wide Web so that you had to pay for it, that actually worked. And mm -hmm. I suddenly, suddenly everybody had $8 to give me instead of not giving me a dollar, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very bizarre psychology going on here that people need things to be uh, exclusive, right? And mm -hmm. so now my members are my exclusive people and I do love them and I do cater to them and I do everything I can to, to focus on what the members want and what the members need uh, because they are keeping me afloat. But at the same time, if everybody had just given me a dollar, I would have never needed anything, you know? And uh, so now it's, it's a weird place that people can't let go. They don't think of minimum input, maximum output, and altruistic people feel weird about asking people for the job that they do, right? It's one of the big reasons why I do what I do. It's exactly, it's exactly this conundrum that uh, I wish I could give everything away, but I know for a fact that when I do give things away for the most part, now there, are, there will be exceptions to this, and I'm an exception to it. When I'm given something, I tend to value it, I use it, I work my ass off with whatever I've been given. 
but for the most part, people don't, they, they don't register it. It's, it doesn't hit the radar, you know? So I was off uh, at one point in my life as a, as a teacher and an artist, and I was giving so much more than the $20 yoga fee that they had to pay for the class, but nobody recognized it. They didn't even miss it when I, when I quit to, to do this, uh, you know, more at a high end level because they, it wasn't registering. They, they weren't getting what I was giving. But as soon as I charged thousands of dollars, then they get it. Exactly. And they don't always get it then either. There's, it's not a guarantee. There's about half the people that I teach to build a business. They don't, they're not successful. Right. One half, right? So it's not, even a, it's not even a given that you invest yourself to the tune of thousands of dollars and you do it. So there's, there's something, it's like this, this pyramid of, of, you know, and it's purpose, really. What, when you have a strong enough purpose and what comes before purpose, I was just writing about this yesterday, what comes before purpose is commitment. Because when, once you've got that full commitment, then purpose starts to take shape. It, there's a certain gravity and a certain, uh, you know, inspiration calls you and you, you have to do this first. You don't even know why you have to do it, but you're doing it because you've got that full commitment. And, and to me, that's what generally people lack. And it, it, you know, once, once you have this in this day and age, to me, once you have that honorable exchange where you are, you are giving they're they're giving there's there's a match you can you can do what you need to do then unconditional you know love or or presence or service can take place but but we can't do that without that honorable exchange at this stage you know maybe 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 hopefully we'll evolve to that place but it's you know it's quite a navigation to to feel like there's something wrong with charging people. And, and I've got to that place where it's, you know, there's something wrong for not charging and it's never to put anybody altruistic down. It's just that if you're truly meant to serve, then that's the sacrifice you have to make getting past that threshold of discomfort. Anyway, that's my soapbox for the moment, but. uh, It's true. It's true. You know, it, yeah. it, it's that's how we perceive value now, and uh, that's that's one of the big things that I, I, you know, it's probably a lesson I needed. It wasn't a lesson other people's needed. You know, it was more that I needed to know that I was I I was a value, right? Like uh, you know, I'm shocked every day, mm-hmm. every month that I make money. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my gosh, these people are paying me, you know? And for me, this was a very, uh, well, I had no choice, right? In the same way that you did when my mom, uh, my mom was dying five years ago. And she, as I say, paid half my bills to keep me on the television show and to keep me going every month. And she was only living off of pension, you know, she was like, she was giving me half of her, of her, of her, her entire money, you know? Wow. Uh, and I kept promising her, there's a way, mom, there's a way I can make this work. There is a way, I promise you, I swear, I know there is. And, and, and other people have done it. Like, I was on everybody else's pay for shows, like Red Ice. I mean, I was on Red Ice. I was their first guest. I mean, there, I was their first American guest. 
I was their fourth guest, but their first American guest. And you know, then I realized everybody's paying them for all the hard work I did on their show. You know, yeah. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know anything. You know, you got to get a private server. You got to figure all these things out. You know, I didn't know how to do it. So I just thought, well, people would give me a dollar. You know, but no. Uh, So I, my mom was dying in my my house we were you know taking care of her for the end and um you know i kept promising hey i'm I'm gonna make this work mom i'm gonna make it work and she died before i got it done but i i got it done (laughs) and congratulations yeah i mean it was that type of uh peril that caused me to finally charge for my work and learn how to how to charge for my work I didn't want to be homeless again. I just didn't. I'm, I'm 52 now. You know, it's the road days are over. I'm not ready to jump back in that van again. You know, it's sore. <laughs> For sure. Uh, you know, not that I wouldn't go. I love it. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't. I want to do it by choice now. So that was the peril that I had to be placed under to finally have you know the final carpet ripped out from underneath me to actually finally start charging for my work. Wow, wow, yeah. I've never been paid for a lecture either. All the lectures you've seen, I've never I've never been paid for those. Right. Uh, I was in a movie with Anne Hathaway and Dan Fogler. I didn't get paid for that. But I don't care, you know, I'm doing, I don't care. I get to say I'm on HBO, I'm on Discovery Channel, I'm in a comic book. I was on a movie with Dan Fogler and Anne Hathaway. I was at the first ever all night ritual the Mayans performed at the pyramids of Tikal. Uh, you know, I don't yeah. care about money. These yeah. are the things I care about. But now yeah, the money comes, I don't think about it. I'm shocked every time. I mean, I'm I'm just delighted and, and giddy about the fact that I am now making it. I know mom's looking down somewhere and she sees what I've done. I managed to pull it all together. I managed, uh, you know, I call my house the house that ridicule bought because uh, I obviously didn't have a down payment for a house, but suddenly I put up this video with Stuart Swerdlow, I think it was, his lecture that he had given at Free Your Mind, which I'm, I'm given free license by Free Your Mind to promote all their videos. And so I put up this Stuart Swerdlow lecture and it went viral and it went viral because everybody hated it, right? Because that's what goes viral, right? things that people can ridicule. Right. And I made $10,000. Yeah. And awesome. then YouTube said, holy shit, uh, we're, we're going to ban you. Uh, we're going to, we're removing half of your content. We're stripping you of your monetization. We can't have you having money. So now my YouTube is useless or worthless to me. And I haven't put a video up in a month or more. I don't even know because they, they stripped everything away, considering, you know, viewership, money, anything, I, you know, come to freemantv.com if you want, you know, but nobody comes to your website. This is like, that was the biggest lesson I learned uh, from 2012 was nobody goes to your website. They're not gonna go to your website. They're just not gonna go to you. Even if they're your biggest fans, uh, I don't okay, know. Okay, so I just wanted to say, I'm one of your biggest fans. I go direct to your website. Nice. 
I go a little bit, a little bit to YouTube just to comb around and maybe there's something that I can't find because then you got so much volume, 15 years worth of content at your website. It's a little bit easier to search around, but you have a search bar now at your website too. Um, yeah, I just want to search the, those videos. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. But I so, got broken down into content, you know, like, so the TV show, the lectures, you know, they're, they're separated on the website and playlist and content. Yeah, I got it. It's, it's actually really beautiful how, you, how you've got it set it up, how, how you've got it set up, because for many months, I could consume what you had on the public channels. And it did a lot for me. And then there was some point where it was like, I need more. There's something I need a closer connection. I tried to reach you. I couldn't find you. So I thought, okay, well, I just want more of those videos. Once I joined as a member and right away, I knew I just wanted to um, book it for a year. I, there was no $8 a month. I just knew I wanted to go for the, the full year thing. And then somehow being in that back door like that gave me a greater sense of safety. And yes, there's exclusivity. So, but I, I don't really care about that. I care about the intimacy. I care about the sense of closeness, the, the less guarded conversation, how your guests would open up in a totally different way behind the scenes. You know, so it's the same kind of business model I teach that I don't want to just have, um, you know, $7,000 package. And then it, only if you can afford $7,000, can you work with me? No, I do all kinds of, I do these videos for free. I do articles for, for no charge. I'm posting every day and people say they're so inspiring to just come and check in on my posts. Um, I have conversations, hundreds of conversations with people at no charge whatsoever. Some of them book with me, some of them don't. And it's not really any of my business, whether they do or not. This is how I run my business. As long as I give like that, but in a strategic way. So I want to make this qualification because there's a lot of people out there, strong nurturers, they're giving and they're not getting anything back. And they just, all they do is get resentful and hate people. That's, it's not about that. There are little things that you can learn on how to make sure it comes back to you so that you're responsible with your giving and not just, um, you know, caution to the wind uh, so much. So once you've, once you've given all you've got, and you need, and, and, and then you, you start to realize nobody's giving back. They're all just calling to take. Uh, you know, you start to realize when you don't have anything left to give, who's, who's just the taker and who's not. But, you know, who wants to get to that point where you're so beaten down uh, that you, you know, but it happens and you you get you've given all you have to give and then you realize that all the people that are contacting you are just asking from you they don't even care how you are they don't even want mm -hmm. to know how you are you know they're just like can mm -hmm. you do this for me can you do that for me can you do this and you don't notice that when you've got the energy to give like sure i'll do that i'll do that sure i'll do that and i pushed myself into a nervous breakdown i took way too much on writing three books while making a television show and doing lectures you know it was like ah, I, I broke down you know i couldn't do it i i but luckily for me i can't even just back out especially when i wasn't getting paid i could just quit for three months and who cares right um, but uh, that was something I discovered when I finally had reached my breaking point. I had worked too much, too hard, 
and everybody that I realized, everyone that was contacting me was really just trying to take from me and there wasn't anybody giving. So that was a big lesson. It's the plight of both the men and the women that I work for, so the, the women being those merpreneurs and mermaid ones that have a hard time with the boundaries and charging and that kind of thing. And then, and then the king hero side of it is not the mermen, it's the king heroes. And they are so uh, much in service because the role of the king, we think it's all about power and wealth and everything. Well, yeah, that, uh, you, that better be part of it because otherwise you can't run a, a, a kingdom without that. But the, the whole thing is servitude, is being that servant and then and being the nurturer, right? People think that the, the nurturer is such a feminine thing or woman's thing, but no, like really it, it's, I mean, yes, it is women's thing too, but we, they don't recognize to the great extent that men are taking care of others, even in a traditional context with their wife, their children, um, if they've got a business, it's they're taking care of everybody that they're serving in their business and employees and paying their taxes and on and on it goes. And, and it does come to that point where all of a sudden, and, and frankly, I'm more of a king than I am a mermaid. Uh, in, in my world, this unnatural world that we live in, I've got that king thing going on. And it comes to that point of, of crash, right? When kings crash and they fall down and that's, that's just it. They, they went going, they, you know, they kept going until they couldn't go anymore and things fell apart. And that's where I feel like my role is to, first of all, help them to maybe not crash, to see it coming, to stop it in advance, to, you know, work at that level that you discovered inside yourself, that magic to be able to transmute internal energy, to walk with that that humbleness and openness and you know men have a hard time accessing that inner world and the emotional side so there's not a day that goes by right now with my work that I'll you know a man will cry in front of me and I couldn't honestly be more honored by that that they would have that kind of courage to let their emotions up and and be seen so you know, and the other side of it, because I nearly died of a stage four lymphoma to help them pick up the pieces if, if there has been that crash to not have to go down entirely because, you know, if we lose our men on this planet, then everybody's cooked. That's very true. Very true. And yeah. uh, I, I run Freeman's Home for Wayward Genius. Uh, there's always somebody on my floor, or my couch or a spare room or whatever, you know. Uh, I like to give that space to people that was granted to me. Uh, like when I started the television show, a jazz band let me sleep on their couch for you know, a year while I made the television show. I, I hadn't had that time. I wouldn't have been able to put the effort in. And uh, so I, I give, give that back. And men always have a hard time giving the gift of receiving. They think it's uh, less of them to receive from people and to take charity if you will which it's never charity it's always sharing it's always like something that people love to give you know and uh, totally i've never been needy uh i've never begged and all my times of living on the road i've always been catered for just because people like me and you know i i share in the adventure but yeah it's hard for men to give the gift of receiving to to be uh, subservient to others and to 
because I didn't lose my sovereignty or my kingship, my king hero at all during any of this time. It, Even, no, it grew it. it, yeah. it that was the thing that made it come to life. Right, right, yeah. Uh, being, you know, being under the thumb of the women that run the houses, it was often a reversal role in my life because a lot of times I stayed in women's houses. And, uh, you know, uh, they're crazy. <laughs> True enough. Sorry. <laughs> True One enough. lady would throw me out every full moon until I oh. pointed it out. I was like, do you realize you throw me out every full moon? And then it made her so mad she never threw me out again. <laughs> uh, but yeah so it's true uh we we gotta be those kings we gotta hold the space we gotta hold that but we need a sandwich we need a, a meal we need a um you know a rub a, a feeling that somebody cares that we're putting in the effort mm-hmm. and you know being taken for granted it's it's really annoying uh, <laughs> i hear you i hear you yeah so that's just really good to know that, you know, if, if you appreciate somebody's work out there, take a chance and write them to, to let them know. Yeah. I, this is something, my claim to fame, I, I do this very often and, you know, it might seem, and it was hard because you were a little harder to reach even, but I was determined to just let you know that you have positively influenced me. And so... It, it, you know, just just to reflect that, that it, it makes a difference. Don't don't think that it doesn't make a difference or that if you didn't get through or you didn't get a response, somehow that it hasn't registered, that it's appreciation goes a long way. It really does. Yeah, not to mention actual support. So please do go to Freeman's website, freemantv.com. I know it well. And consider being a member because for $8 a month, you get... Um, huge wealth a huge wealth of material it's not just the monthly video or the weekly video that you get because they come out every saturday you get 15 years of content and this has been the service that freeman has provided the world that you don't have to go through every little nook and cranny and down every bloody rabbit hole out there to look into very painful subjects he's vetted this process for you and that was a huge service to me so you know definitely go and check it out and uh, spend some time educating yourself on what there is to know make yourself powerful so you can create um, your own power so you're not you're not controllable from my side I would just highly encourage everybody to do whatever it takes to let your fears go. And if you're not successful at doing that, come and knock on my door because when you don't have that fear of not surviving, nobody can hang anything over you. That's, that's really the only reason we do anything out of our integrity or out of our sense of morality, which a lot of the participation in society, today's society, we have to, unfortunately, it's all supporting something that's not actually right. So that's my hope for humanity. It's that simple. If we woke up and each one could see through their fear to the illusion that it actually is. And I'm not going to pretend to do that perfectly, but I've been working on this like crazy. Face my death. 
it would be a different world and it would be fast how things would turn around. That's the absolute truth. Exactly, exactly. So is there any closing words you'd like to share with our audience? We talked about a lot of stuff. I just so appreciate that you took the time to have this conversation. It was amazing yeah, for me anyway. Yeah. yeah. Quite a bit longer than I, I imagined. Uh, yeah. Uh, patience and persistence was always my road motto. Uh, if, if something came up and my transmission cover fell off and my van didn't move, I sat down and I learned how to fix it. You know, uh, take the time to be yourself, take the, the freedom that you have and use it. Um, Yeah, I, I wanted something profound here, uh, but uh, the truth is that, that life will carry you forward. And there's nothing that I can say to make you believe that. And you either have to go into desperate peril to prove this to yourself, say, lose your home, have everything fall apart, and have to start over. Then you'll discover, oh my God, you know, as long as you don't fall into victim. Uh, that you have this power of manifestation and or you can choose to do it you know you can see the perils coming and you can just choose to go ahead and just change uh, everything in your life or you know uh, I've done it so many times in so many ways <laughs> you could just go and and life will take care of you and you won't know this until you try Amazing. That's such a great message. Yeah. It, I mean, so, so clear now to me, but if you believe you need a big breakdown, then that's probably what you're headed for. But if you believe that you can just be your own breakdown and make it, make a choice, even though it's hard, then you can do it that way too. So it's only frightening that's, for a minute. It's only frightening for a minute. Exactly. Exactly. You see, and, and every time, I get to the other side of fear, I realize that it wasn't even there. Yeah, I've been nervous every time I hit the road, every single time I get out there, every time I get on this radio program. But every time I travel, I'm nervous. I'm like, oh my God, I'm freaking out. I gotta go on the road. And then I, I'm out and all of a sudden it's beautiful, miraculous. I forgot all about you know all the, the trepidation I had leaving uh, because then I'm lost in the event. Mm, nice lost in adventure that's so beautiful that's awesome well thank you again for joining me uh please do visit freemantv.com look into freeman's work it's vast and amazing and you could even just start with now and work your way backwards that's also a good way to to look in um if you're interested in diving in a little bit with the work that i do having your king hero archetype read it's not to see if you are that or not. I'm assuming if you're interested in doing it, you are that. Uh, this quiz is about finding your way on the journey. Where are you? What are the big challenges that you're facing at this point? Where are you potentially losing your, your energy? And also, what are your gifts? What, what can you pick up on so that when you're on that adventure, you can play to your strengths and create something of purpose and of value? which is the heart of you. So you can visit my website, bethmartins.com. If you're more of a mermaid than you are a king hero, there's also merpreneur archetype quiz that's about finding the value of your purpose as well. 
So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us and taking the time to give a crap about your purpose on this planet. All together now, we can do this. All we have to do is join up and stop pretending that we're just uh, little insignificant beings on this planet. And uh, things can shift and grow and be this paradise that it's really meant to be on this planet. So, thank you so much, Freeman. Thank you. And don't forget, it's the age of minimum input, maximum output. Little Amen to that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Very good. Bye for now. Bye. It takes a lot of love to be everything.